Thanks for checking out the Southcrest Church Podcast. We are one church meeting in two locations in South Atlanta. You can find us online at southcrest.church, where you can listen to our past sermons, watch our 4G stories, and learn more about who we are. Hey man, I want to welcome both of our campuses this morning, LaGrange and Noonan. Can you give each other a big round of applause? We are live. Very excited about the opportunity today. Today, we are actually going to finish up our series out of the book of Nehemiah. You say, how in the world are you going to preach that many chapters? Let me say this. God is kind of directing us towards next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday, and I'm going to be speaking a message on Palm Sunday about the, the, the Palm Road that Jesus walked. God has given me a message that I want to share with you guys as we get ready for Easter. And so I'm very, very excited. I love when, when God um, changes plans because it means he must want to do something big. Amen. Now, I don't know about you. I love when God interrupts my problems with his presence. I just feel like I need to say that this morning because in Atlanta, we got a big problem, right? We got a section of highway that fell and people are freaking out, right? Like people are all over the, the, like, what are we going to do? There's a 50 foot section of highway that no longer exists. Listen, God is bigger than our problems. Amen. Amen. And if he, if he can't make a road, he'll find a road, he'll get us there. And I'm just, just here to tell you today that as we finish the book of Nehemiah, I think it's funny that we're preaching the idea of rise up, right? Because right now in Atlanta, we need to rise up and just say, God's about to do something great. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter nine. Last week, we talked about this idea that we're in this new place. The people had finished the wall. They were moving inside of the city and they got the, the book of the law out, the book of the law of Moses. They began to read what God said to them and the promises God had made. And they responded by saying, so be it, God. So be it, God. Truth, God. That's what we want. We want you. We want you. And, and then they moved from this place of just living in this old factory of condemnation and moving into this place of conviction because they knew that God had destined them to rise up. And that's where we are today because we're at the end of that moment where as God's people, if you remember what Nehemiah, he said, he said, don't you cry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We've moved into conviction. So today it's going to get even better. So have you ever thought about how good we are at remembering certain things and forgetting other things in life, right? So women, if you're here today at both of our campuses, you can attest that you wish your husband could remember more things. Can I get a so be it? <laughs> Men, we are really good at remembering things that don't matter a whole lot. Can I just say amen to that, right? Like I can't remember the last three things my wife told me to do, but I can remember who rushed for the most amount of yards in the NFL last year. I can we are good at remembering sometimes useless facts and then forgetting very important things. So I did a little research this week. Top 10 things that people forget. Top 10 things. What do you think they are? Number 10, forgetting where you parked your car. Number 10. Number nine, forgetting what you were searching for online in the first place. Right? You go to search something and suddenly it's like squirrel. Okay. Number eight, forgetting to post something online. Oh, I was going to post that. I forgot to post that, okay? Number seven, forgetting to respond to an email. Number six, 
forgetting to take the meat out of the freezer to defrost. And then suddenly it's 7 o'clock and you realize you have nothing to eat, right? Number five, forgetting where you put your pen. Where did I put that pen? Where did that pen go, okay? I believe that society should have communal pens. We should just share them. Just give them away for free. Okay, that's my thought. Number four, forgetting people's names when you're introducing them. (laughs) Hey, buddy. (laughs) Hey, big guy. Okay, I've so been there before. Number three, forgetting things on your grocery list. You get home and the one thing you went to the store for, you didn't even come back with right? And you feel guilt and shame over that. Number two, forgetting where you put your keys. The number one thing people forget, forgetting what you went into a room for. (laughs) Why did I come in here in the first place? People do that all the time. But memory's important, okay? I don't know if you realize this or not. We have different types of memory. And I want to walk you through this real quick. There's going to be a graphic come up on the screen. There's three basic types of memory. There's sensory memory, which is about what happens one second ago. There's short-term memory, which we call our working memory. I call it the loop that goes on in our head. It's a little bit longer than a minute. Uh, And then there's long-term memory, the things that happen for a lifetime. And then under long-term memory, there's implicit memory, which is our unconscious memory that leads us to procedural memory. We do things out of habit over and over and over again. And then there's explicit memory, which is our conscious memory, the things that you and I continue to dwell on in our lives over and over. And then it becomes declarative memory, and we we kind of take explicit memory and we divide it by facts and events in our lives, right? And then underneath that, there's episodic memory and semantic memory. And episodic memory are those events and experiences that every time you hear a bell ring or every time you see an ice cream truck or every time you hear a song, it takes you back to that moment, right? And then there's semantic memory, facts and concepts. And you say, how do I know still how to do this? And I learned this 20 years ago. We have all these types of memory in our mind. And let me just say, if you're here today and you can't remember a thing I just said, it's okay. Spring break. And if you remember everything I said, like to the point, you're just weird. Memory is important. What we remember. In fact, some of you, you came to church today because you remembered it was Sunday. We do things in our life. We drive certain patterns. We live certain things out in our life because of memories and things that we recall over and over again. The power of memory is very, very important. The ability to take information and recall it and then apply meaning to that information in a way that transforms us is very, very, very powerful. It's why Paul said in the book of Romans, we need to have a renewed mind. Because if we're not letting the Holy Spirit renew our mind and God renewing our mind every day, then chances are we may be dwelling on memories that God says, I don't want you to remember that. I don't want you to remember what happened to you when you were four years old. Did it happen to you? Absolutely. But I don't want you to remember it. I remember when I was four years old, I was told about this. I didn't even know that it happened. I was running through the house with a bottle of closed nail polish in my mouth and I fell and it busted and my parents said it cut me from here to here. I looked like the Joker. They had to sew me up from the inside out. I don't remember that. 
I don't remember anything about that, but the truth is I don't want to remember that. And the thing is true in our life is memory is powerful. We have to let the Holy Spirit renew our mind, and if we don't, we may be stuck with memories that God doesn't want us to have. But can I tell you this about God? There's a lot of memories God wants us to have. If you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9 They went from a place of hearing God's word and moving out of condemnation into celebration. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And it got even more intense because the Bible says in the last part of chapter eight and first part of chapter nine, God's people started really rising up. They started really confessing their sins before each other and getting right with God and just really saying, God, we wanna be awakened by you. And, And that's why I said, I love it when God interrupts our problems with his presence Because what we realize is the things we're going through in life really don't matter. What only really matters is him. And that's kind of at the place that they were. But I want you to look what it says in Nehemiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood there, they stood there where they uh, were and read from the book of the law, their God, for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So here's the thought. They were in such awe of remembering who God was that they just stayed in that moment. And then look what it says in verse four. Standing on the stairs uh, of the Levites were, and he reads these names of these guys, and he says, they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, who were the people who were there in the temple helping out, right? Said, stand up, praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. I remember when I was studying for this series, the one reason we called it Rise Up is you can see over and over again throughout the book of Nehemiah, God's desire for his people to rise up. Remember, we have a destiny. And if we have a destiny, God wants to get us there. And it's not about finishing a wall. I wanna say this about you in your life. It's not about the career you're gonna have here on earth. It's not about what people will remember about you that's written about you in a magazine. What's going to matter when you and I leave this planet is what we did for God's kingdom. And in this moment, he's like, stand up and praise the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting. And what we see in the last part of Nehemiah should always cause us to rise up. And here's why. Not because we're strong. Not because we can endure a lot of things but because we remember, we remember. So if you have a pen, I want you to write a couple things down today about how you and I can always live rising up. Number one, it's very simple today. Remember who God is. Remember who God is. Remember who God is. I wanna say it about a thousand times today. Remember who God is. Remember his greatness. His greatness, right? Because what do we do? We somehow want to come down to the size of our problems and we need to stay up to the size of our God. We need to remember his greatness. Look at verse six. You alone are the Lord, they said. You made the heavens 
and even the highest heavens and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You need to remember who God is and you need to remember his greatness. You see, there's a lot of things that we think are more powerful than who God is, and they're not. There's a lot of things that we say, man, this is a a difficult season in our country. I don't know how politically we're going to make it through. Listen, I want to give you a very honest answer for America today. We don't need more social programs. We don't need more money in our economy. We need to remember how great our God is. If he gave us one more percent oxygen, we would explode. And one less percent, we would choke. He holds everything in place. He can even fix I-85. We got to remember his greatness. And then we got to remember his goodness. In this chapter, verses 9 through 30, the people begin to remember who God is. And they remember how great he is. And then they remember how good he is. And so I want to pose a question to you today. How good is God really? How good is God really? You see, all of us in our mind, we kind of size that question up by what our circumstances say. Like, I have a friend who's going through cancer. And so God is good, but he's not good enough. How good is God really? Because in verses 9 through 30, basically these people explain really how good God is. How good God is. First of all, he never abandons us. He never abandons us. Do you realize God is always aware of your circumstances? He's not somewhere out in the field going, I can't get to you. I can't, I can't get near what's happening to you. I can't deal with what's happening. Somehow all these things slip through my fingers. No, God's looking at you and saying, I've never, ever abandoned you. God's always aware of your circumstances. Look at verse 9. Here's what they said. It says, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all the officials and all the people of the land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. God never once left them. They left God, but God never leaves them. And I want to tell you something today. It doesn't matter how jacked up you are today. It doesn't matter what you, you may be here addicted to drugs, pornography. You may be addicted to like yourself, like you're so focused on yourself, you can't see who God is. But I want to tell you today, there's a God in heaven and he doesn't abandon you. He doesn't abandon you. And so I think we got to put our eyes back on the fact that God is so good, he never abandons. You know what else? He always guides us. He always guides us. He always instructs us. How? The same way he did his people, first of all, through his word. The law, the scriptures, verse 12, by day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on their way 
on the way that they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven and you gave them regulations and laws uh, that are right and just and decrees and commands that are good. You have made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. Some of you say, I I, I don't want a God that has all these words or laws for me. Listen, I just want to tell you this. I kind of like God's laws. I kind of like God's word. Here's why. Because I'm a person who needs instruction. I don't always know how to get where I think God wants me to get in my life. And some of you go, well, we should never have laws. No, no, no. Listen, I love laws. I love the fact that if you break into my house in the middle of the night, the alarm's gonna go off and within two to 12 minutes, a police officer will be at my door. I find that fascinating. And I just wanna say this. He says, hey, through the laws and through the scripture, God came in a cloud of fire, pillar of fire and a cloud. I mean, he literally just led his people out. Like one day they would be like, hey, we're gonna move. And God says, hey, get up because I'm gonna, my presence is gonna go here. And God says, I wanna guide you. You know how else God guides us? Through our community of faith, the church. Say, how does God do that? You see, we get guidance by living in relationship with one another. I need you in my life to become all that God has intended me to become. God wired us that way. We call it community. We get our guidance by committing ourselves to one another, not through individualism. You see, I can't be all that God has called me to be without people in my life, and neither can you. I can't have real community even in a room this big. I mean, I know many of you, I could look out here and call you by name, which might embarrass you. But the truth is, I can't have true community in a a worship center this size or even one maybe half this size. But it's when I invest my life in somebody else that God begins to say, I want to guide you through these relationships. And I can have real community when I see that community of faith is part of how God guides me. I know people, they say, well, why, why do we even go to church? Why don't we just like, why don't we just put it on a device and let people watch it on a device. And I say this, listen, you, you can't have real community with a device, right? Now, you can get stressed out about a device. I don't know about you, even, even sometimes when I go somewhere and I watch something on a device, I go, it's still not like I'm there. See, but the thing about this moment, LaGrange and Noonan, is we are here. God says, one of the ways I want to guide you is through the community of faith. You know how else God shows us his goodness? He always provides for us. He always provides. He met their physical needs. He brought them manna from heaven. He brought water from a rock out in the middle of a desert. He, it says in the scripture, he gave them a place to possess. You know what that tells me about God? God, God doesn't always give me what I want. God gives me what I need. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes in life we get it mixed up. We're like, God, you're only God if you give me what I want. And God goes, no, I'm God because I give you what you need. Just when you need it, just the way you need it. And I can't say again how good God is that way. In fact, I I just, I want to give testimony today 
to how God provides. Because I think something that's been stolen from the church is that we don't testify to the goodness of God enough. Like last week, we didn't even have enough supplies to feed 500 families through Backpack Buddies. God met the need. God always provides. He is good. He's good. And so we're just like, God, how? How in the world? I want to try to make this happen. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm good. Look what it says in verse 15. It says, in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. And you told them to go in and take possession of the land. And you'd sworn to them with uplifted hands to give them. God says, hey, listen, I always provide for you. But I love the way God says it. It's not about my provision. It's about my presence. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. We are never truly satisfied if we seek good things from God without seeking God himself. You may have what you need, but you don't have the best part of it because what you and I really need is God. Remember, he provides. You know what else I know about God? He's ready to forgive. He extends grace to broken people. He continually delivered them back again and again out of captivity. He continued to restore them. Look at verse 26. But when they were disobedient and rebelled against you, they turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they when they, but when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven and you heard them in the greatest compassion. You gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they did it again and did evil in your sight. And then you abandoned them to the hands of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard them from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time and time again. Listen. He is not the God of first chances, second chances. He is the God of many chances. He loves to extend grace. And I just think it's funny because we're at the end of the Old Testament here in Nehemiah. And you know what God's really doing? He's setting his people up for a Messiah. Think about that. He's ready to forgive. He's preparing us for Jesus to come to the earth. So we could understand the power of that grace. The power of that grace. You see, when we remember who God is, that's the biggest step. But then we got to remember who we are. You got to remember who you are. See, I think sometimes we flip the equation. We come to God and say, God, do you have any idea how, how horrible I am? <laughs> and God goes, no, 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 no. You need to start from remembering who I am. And when you remember who I am, then I will give you the ability and I will show you who you are. Because at the end of chapter 9, after they had said all these things, God provided, God forgave, God restored us. Look what it says in verse 38. In view of all this, this is how the people responded. We are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are fixing their seals on it. Now, that's pretty awesome. Get the picture. They begin to see the totality of God's greatness 
and understand the bigness of God's goodness. And in response to that, they said, we want to make a binding agreement with God. Here's what they didn't say. God is mad at us, and we're going to live in dejection the rest of our life. Here's what they didn't say. God, you are so far away from me that I can't ever get to you. Therefore, I'm never, ever going to truly follow you ever. No, no, no. When they saw who God was, they began to see who they were. We are a people who are made for a covenant relationship with God. We've got to know who we are. They said, we want to make a binding agreement. Started thinking about this, did a little research, binding agreement. What does that mean? It means we, we want to be bound to you, God. You see, a lot of people say, I want a God that God will do what I want him to do when, he, when I need him to do it, and I want to put God on a leash. They literally said, God, we want us to tie ourselves to you. I think that's pretty cool. So I started thinking back in my life, has that ever happened to me? Well, yeah, it did. It happened in eighth grade. When I was growing up in Oklahoma City, there was a certain necklace you gave to a girl at the age of 14 when you were dating. It was called, I don't know if y'all had this in Georgia, but it was called a drop. You know what that is? A drop was a chain that had a little pennant on it, and that pennant had your initials. S-P-S. I went down to the jeweler because I had older brothers and sisters. I had seen them give a drop to a girl before. My sister had one that a boy had given to her, and here's what it meant. I belong to you. You belong to me. Here we are at the roller skating rink, singing Open Arms by Journey. Now I come to you with open arms. You want a pickle? Can't go to the roller room without a pickle. <laughs> and I look over, and the girl I'm dating, her name was Shannon. She had a drop, and it said SPS. And guess what? We were in a binding agreement. <laughs> Everybody in that skating rink knew. They looked around. She got a drop. Yep, she's got a drop on. No couple skate with her. She could go over and play Missile Command or Asteroids all she wanted. All the guys couldn't check her out. Why? Because she had a binding agreement to me. By the way, Shannon, I've never gotten that drop back from you. Wherever you are in the world, just return it. Noonan, Georgia. It's a bad breakup. Guys, listen. When they saw who God was, they began to see who they were. And they said, God, I want to have a binding agreement with you. I want to have a binding agreement. I want to enter back into this covenant that you created me for. And I look at all that and I think that is so awesome. But can you imagine what you and I get to experience because of Jesus Christ? We don't get to experience the power of that old covenant of a binding agreement. But through grace and power and resurrection, we live in the fullness of what that whole binding agreement is about. And you and I come and say, God, I want all of you because I want to remind myself of who I am. If I know who God is and I remember who I am, I will always have the ability to rise up. You go over to chapter 10. The people, man, God, we want to be in this relationship with you. 
It's funny, you know, it's one thing to say I want to be in a relationship with you, but then there's that moment where you start defining the terms. Here's what that means. It means on the weekends, we'll go out. It means I will call you at least twice a day, morning and night. It means I will let you hang up first. I won't hang up first, right? You start defining these things. You know what God's people did? They started doing the same thing. They started defining to God, God, this is how much we love you because we know who you are and we know who we are. And it's amazing what they did. 84 people signed this binding agreement, chapter 10. 84 people. There were many others who they said agreed to it, but they just couldn't get their signature on the binding agreement to God. But you know what they did? They let this agreement define three things in their life. Number one, their relationships. The first thing they did in chapter 10 is they said, we will not marry people outside of the faith. You know why? Because every time that they quit marrying within the people that they, the people of God, and they begin to go outside and marry people who were outside that faith, it led them to idol worship. It led them back into captivity. There's a truth there. The, the whole idea of marriage there in chapter 10 is, God, we want to be in a binding agreement with you when it comes to our relationships. Because we know that our relationships will be a reflection of who you are and who we are. You know the other thing that they got into a binding agreement with God about? Some of you are going to find this shocking. Rest. They restored the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? I love going to Israel because when you get there, you're there for a couple days and then all of a sudden the Sabbath hits. And see, I remember growing up in a city where things were closed in Oklahoma City on Sunday because they had all these laws. They called them blue laws. But basically in America, we used to have a little bit more idea what the Sabbath was. But when you go to Jerusalem and you go to Israel, they don't cook. They have an elevator that you can't even push the button. It goes to all 17 floors. Why? Because to push the button would be work because by you engaging that button, somebody back at the electric station has to work. But here's what it was. You say, well, that's legalistic. Now, here's what God was trying to say. Every seven days, I just want you to stop and remember me. Just stop. I want you to be still and remember that I delivered you out of captivity. I want you to rest from all your toil and your labor. Why? Because I want you to remember who I am. It was through remembering the Sabbath was part of how they remembered who God was. And I talk to people all the time in our culture and they say this, man, I'm so overwhelmed. My kids got 63 games in three weeks. How are we going to do this? I'm struggling. I'm busy. Listen, folks, part of the reason that maybe our culture doesn't believe that we've truly risen up is because we're still operating at the same mode that the world is and what the world really needs to see us do is rest. I praise God for companies like Chick-fil-A. I find it funny. By resting on Sunday, it makes everyone hungry on Monday. I've seen some of you in the drive through line. Twice. 
Man, I just want to say this to you. Part of our binding agreement with God is to say, God, I'm going to take time to rest. I'm going to rest. Because by resting, people are going to look at me and say, why aren't you as stressed out as ever? Why aren't you as toiling? Why are you not overwhelmed? Because every seven days, I just stop and remember who God is. He can do more in a moment than I can do in a lifetime. But you know the third thing that they did? They looked at their relationships, they looked at their rest, and then the third thing is they looked at their resources. There were four things related to the resources that they said, God, we want to rebind ourselves back to you on. The first was what was known as the temple tax. Half of a shekel went to the temple. You know why? So that the ministries of the temple could continue to move forward. So that the priests and the Levites would never have to worry about how are we going to take care of the hungry, take care of the poor. Listen, guys, part of the evidence that we are living in a life that's rising up is how we steward our resources. They had the temple tax. Then they had the wood offering. They had to make sacrifices. And so people would go out and they would cut wood and they would bring part of the wood to the temple because they knew the sacrifice had to continue to go on and on and on. And then they had what was called the first fruits. They would say, hey, this is the best calf. This is the best lamb. This is the best this. And they would bring their first and their best and they would bring it to the temple. And then they gave their tithe. Why did they give a tithe? It was to support the Levites. So that the Levites could spend their days 24-7 operating within the temple and performing the ministerial duties. So I find it funny because in our day and age, there's a lot of people that argue, you know, is, is giving relevant anymore? Well, the funny thing is, because of grace, it ought to be more relevant. I mean, they gave these four things because of the law. In Christ, we ought to say, you know what, God, in my relationships, in my rest, and in my resources, I'm going to remember who you are, and I'm going to remember who I am. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39, when they said all these things, here's what they said. We will not neglect the house of our God. Why did they say that? Because they wanted their building to be fancy? Why did they say that? Because they wanted the temple to always look clean? Here's what they knew. If the temple was the center of the community, one of the ways that they would see the city rebuilt is by God's people always living restored. I want to say something to you today. God wants to use you and I through our relationships, through our rest, and even through our resources to live in this state of always rising up. You know why? So that we can rebuild our cities. Maybe we've gotten it backwards. Maybe the infrastructure needs to start in the house of God. Maybe the church has been too judgmental of the world and say, well, if you didn't have this and you didn't have this, you wouldn't have poverty. No, no, no. It starts with the same statement they made, we will not neglect the house of our God. They rose up and they rebuilt their whole city because they put God back at the center of all. So here's the truth today. When we remember who God is and remember who we are, we will always rise up no matter what the obstacle or the opposition we face. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. 
Remember, you can find more sermons just like this one on our website at southcrest.church. If you have any questions about our church, email us at hello at southcrest.tv. We'll see you next time.